Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. It is our readers who support the Digest and we intend to keep it that way. To find out how you can support a truly independent voice in the Middle East and North Africa, head to ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. In the information overload world in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. One article a day and the weekly podcast from top experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources, and no overload. My guest today is the analyst and commentator, Sami Hamdi editor-in-chief of the International Interest, a global risk and intelligence company. Our conversation is about how the Gaza war has made the Middle East the most insecure it has been in decades. Great to have you back at the podcast, Sammy. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. I'd like to begin by looking at insecurity, escalation, de-escalation as the Gaza war grinds on. And Sammy, I want to do it through the lens, first of all, of some of the, the big regional players. Let's begin with Turkey. Uh, how is President Erdogan's view of the war shifting? Is it shifting? And, and can Turkey play any meaningful role in de-escalation? I think that when it comes to Turkey's position, I think Turkey's position has been consistent since the start of Israel's bombardment of Gaza that is has become essentially a genocide and ethnic cleansing. I think that it's important to remember that the week before October 7th took place, Erdogan for the first time shook hands with Netanyahu since coming to power and there was this push from Turkey to establish a gas pipeline in the Mediterranean, to work with the Israelis to ease tensions in the Mediterranean in order to find some agreement with regards to access to resources. And there was also concern in Turkey that Israel might actually Uh, go along with Saudi Arabia and the UAE in developing this Middle East corridor that was announced at the G20 summit in India only a few months ago. Uh, And Turkey was lobbying the Israelis to tell them, listen, don't go through UAE and Saudi. We're a better country for you to go through. Let's work together. Let's work with economic ties. Let's expand those economic ties. Uh, And I think that when, so when October 7th took place, I think that the reaction of Turkey was one in which it very much tried to hold the stick in the middle. It was trying to ensure that it was seen to be close with the Palestinians without necessarily offending the Israelis. Even if you note the manner in which the Israeli ambassador left Turkey and then Turkey subsequently withdrew the Turkish ambassador, it was a reaction to the angry Turkish population which was dismayed at Erdogan's position in which he was trying to present this sort of neutrality in this particular issue because of economic interests. And so when the Israeli ambassador left out of fear from the Turkish population, not because Turkey asked them to leave, but the Turkish population was so angry, then there was sort of this embarrassment in that Erdogan felt that I have to withdraw my ambassador now from Israel as well. It's not something ideally he wanted to do, but he didn't want to be seen as someone who still had his ambassador in Israel while the Turks had kicked out Israel's ambassador uh, from uh, uh, Turkey. 
The point that I'm saying is that when it comes to Turkey's position, there's sort of this hope that all of this will just go away so that Turkey can or Turkey can resume its bid to improve its ties with the Israelis in order to pursue economic ties. If you notice Erdogan's rhetoric and his speech, you'll notice that particularly in the beginning, he was very keen to be neutral. And then when he found the Turkish population turning against him, very angry at his position, which was seen to be very soft, he began to become harder in his rhetoric. But if you listen carefully to his speeches, he says a lot about not being able to work with Netanyahu, not being able to talk to Netanyahu, not being wanting to operate with Netanyahu. The idea being is that, you know, given he believes that Biden wants Netanyahu out, that all these others want Netanyahu out and they want to replace him with Benny Gantz or the like, Erdogan's rhetoric now is aligning with we're willing to work with the Israelis, but can we please get Netanyahu out of the picture? Erdogan believes if Netanyahu is out of the picture, then he can work with the Israelis with some sort of justification. Yeah, interesting balancing act. And as you quite rightly point out, the, the anger uh, of the Turkish people is reflected right across the Middle East, right across the global south, and indeed increasingly in the, in the global north about the manner in which the Israelis are prosecuting this war. Let's look at the Saudis now, Sami, because, you know, they find themselves not just chased off the Abraham Accords, but facing renewed challenges in Yemen and also facing the potential that the Red Sea could become a second front unless there is de-escalation. I think that when it comes to the Saudi, uh, Saudis, I think that the Saudi crown prince's position has been much closer to Israel than it has to the Palestinians, even during this genocide and this ethnic cleansing that has taken place. And I'll explain what I mean. If you remember when Blinken went to Tel Aviv and he landed and he said, I'm here as a Jew, and then he met with Netanyahu and declared that the U.S. would provide unfettered support. Blinken, instead of going back to Washington, went to visit the regional powers. And among those regional powers, he went to visit Saudi Arabia. When he left Saudi Arabia, there was a sudden shift in the rhetoric of the imams in the mosques in which they would come out and say that you should make prayers for Gaza but shouldn't talk about it. Because if you talk about Gaza, it will lead you to turn against your ruler and you should trust that your ruler has better information than you do, that he is wiser than you are, and therefore you shouldn't analyze too much what's happening in Gaza. We also saw Jared Kushner invited to give a keynote speech at the Davos in the Desert Forum three, four weeks into the genocide and ethnic cleansing. And Jared Kushner said from the middle of Saudi Arabia, from the heart of Saudi Arabia, that October 7th was designed to ruin normalization and they will not succeed. And if that, that message you know, would have been approved by the Saudis. You don't just invite somebody like Jared Kushner to give a keynote speech in the middle of a genocide to come and assert that, you know, the, what's considered the betrayal of the century by the Palestinians is going to go ahead regardless. And Kushner made a very interesting statement when he came back to the U.S. He said, I felt safer in Saudi Arabia than I do on U.S. campuses. The point being, he felt safer in Saudi Arabia because he was not uh, being brought up on the issue of genocide, whereas on the U.S. campuses, you know, they're being brought up on a daily basis as to what Israel is doing in the like. And it's very noteworthy that there were reports that Brett McGurk, the Biden's advisor, went to the Saudis to suggest that they could normalize in exchange for an end of the genocide. And instead, the reports were that bin Salman said, no, my, my demands remain the same. I will normalize in exchange for a NATO-style security agreement against the Iranians, nuclear technology to build a nuclear weapon, and support for Vision 2030, suggesting that for the Saudis, 
the genocide in Gaza has not actually made any difference with regards to their interests or their priorities. They believe that normalization is still a tool through which to achieve their means. If you notice, Bill, every two, three days we hear a Saudi official come out and insist that normalization is still possible, whether it's Turkey Faisal, whether it's Faisal bin Farhan, even though there is that caveat that, you know, we'll do it in exchange for a Palestinian state. Remember, two weeks before October 7th, the Saudi crown prince was no longer talking about a Palestinian state, but a pathway to a Palestinian state, saying I'll normalize in exchange for a pathway to a Palestinian It's a statement that made the Palestinians so angry that when the Saudi ambassador went to, Pal went to Ramallah to really show the Israelis that he could bring the Palestinians along with any normalization, he said he would go pray in Al-Aqsa to show these Israelis I can bring the Palestinians in any normalization deal. And the Palestinians warned him. They said, you come to Al-Aqsa, watch what we do to you. And he said, I'm changing my schedule and going home. So to answer your question directly with regards to the Saudis, I don't think they're necessarily worried about the escalation, primarily because the Americans are now increasingly involved. They believe now the Americans are talking to them seriously about security concerns with regards to Iran. Palestine was no longer a particular issue of importance. They were ready to normalize without any real concessions for the Palestinians. So you look at all these moves that really suggest that for the Saudis, you know, they're not too concerned about Gaza, but rather excited about the opportunities that the Americans are now interested where before they were disinterested. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the, uh, and you make that point about Turkey, that uh, Erdogan had to pay attention to the anger in the streets, whereas in Saudi Arabia, MBS can simply, given the, the culture of fear that he presides over, can simply uh, ignore whatever concerns uh, ordinary Saudis might have about what's happening in Gaza. However, I'm just wondering, because uh, you mentioned Iran and, and the Emiratis and Saudis have made really prodigious efforts to... Um, warm their relations with Iran, but you don't think those relations are in any way damaged by what's happening in Gaza as this war continues? I think that when it comes to Saudi-UAE relations with Iran, I think certainly they are, there's this sense of we started this process on the basis that the Americans would no longer protect us from Iranian proxies. And that Iran was entrenching itself in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen. And that we were losing to Iran, or we are losing to Iran in each of these domains. And given the Americans showed in 2019 when the oil facilities were hit, when Abu Dhabi airport was hit, given the Americans showed no inclination to come to our rescue to provide security or to go to war on our behalf, and given that the language of the U.S. presidential candidates is one about detachment, from those issues that are in the Middle East, the UAE and Saudi came together and they said, what are our options? And they realized they can't really go head to head with Iran. They tried eight, nine years in Yemen and the Houthis ended up only becoming stronger. They tried to buy off Iran's allies in Iraq and they found that for all the millions they gave to Muqtada Sadr and other militias in Iraq, those, those militias remained very loyal to Iran. They tried to buy off Bashar al-Assad, but Assad only seems to be giving more and more territory and reign to the Iranians. They tried to buy the Lebanese factions and form a coherent bloc against Hezbollah. Saad al-Hariri failed miserably and so did the other Lebanese blocs. So the Saudi crown prince sat in his office and he said, you know what, I've been in power since 2017. I'm now 2023 or 2024. Vision 2030 is not moving in the way that I expected. Vision 2030 is not moving forward. I need time, I need a truce, I'm tired, I'm spending way too much money on these things. It's in this context, Bill, that he reached out to the Iranians and said to the Iranians, 
come, I'm very tired, let's talk about this. And there was even a gesture of thanks where they sent Ronaldo to go and play in Tehran. They gave the Iranians, you know, a good PR opportunity. The reason why I say that it's not necessarily affected at the moment is because I, when we, if you go back to what I said in the beginning, the idea that all of this is driven by American apathy. If the Saudis feel that the Americans are genuine in deploying their forces to push back Iran, Saudi will throw out the Iranian rapprochement. They will throw out reconciliation with Iran. If Saudis believe, and the UAE, if they believe that the US is absolutely committed to their security, they will go back to antagonism with Iran. Their whole talk with Iran is out of fear, the US. And that's why I think the reason why they won't, it won't ruin relations with Iran at the moment and why Saudi is sort of playing this very strange mediating role with the Iranians is because the Saudis don't trust Biden. The Saudis believe that although Biden is taking an interest now, Biden is not doing it because he cares about the Saudi allies. The Biden is doing it because of the Israelis. And also Biden has yet to give the conditions for normalization, which is the NATO-style security agreement and the nuclear technology and support for Vision 2030. And therefore the Saudis are sort of holding the stick in the middle in that we are giving enough to the Israelis to suggest we're ready to normalize. We're giving enough to Biden to tell him that ideally we don't want to go to China, we don't want to go to BRICS, we don't want to go to Russia. And Biden is not reciprocating in a way that has convinced bin Salman that the Americans are committed. So to answer your question about Iran, I think they're maintaining ties with Iran. They are hoping the Americans now going to push back against Iran. They're not convinced the U.S. is entirely committed. So they are telling the Iranians, let's talk. And that talking process is slowing down. It's no longer as quick as it was before. If you remember, they were talking about exchanging ambassadors and visiting the capitals and whatever. That process is slowing down while bin Salman gives a chance and bin Zayed give a chance to Biden to prove this commitment against the Iranians because they've been scarred before by the Americans. And, and so I think it won't affect Iranian relations. And you make a very good point about this balancing act that Biden doesn't come in as strongly as the Saudis and the Emiratis would like him to do and push back Iran, then why not keep the why not keep the door open for the Iranians, dangerous as they still are in terms of the security of these Gulf states. But let me ask you about another Gulf state, uh, Sami, which is Qatar. It is in an interesting space, hosting Hamas has done for a number of years prior to the war paying public service salaries in Gaza with the approval and support of the Israelis. They've already achieved some success on the hostage front. There's talk ongoing that there may be more hostages released. We'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But do you see that Qatar can play an expanding role in de-escalation and really for this tiny little state, boost themselves back up into the big leagues of, uh, of foreign diplomacy? I think that it has to be said, Qatar's role in all this has been absolutely phenomenal. It's been extraordinary in every sense of the word, in the way that its media has provided relentless coverage of what's been happening in Gaza and the genocide and ethnic cleansing, really keeping up the pressure on the Israelis, keeping up the pressure on the Americans and the Western states, and also refusing to buckle under that pressure. Blinken has gone three times to Doha to ask them to tell Qatar to stop covering the issue in Gaza and, 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 and Palestine, and the Qataris have refused all three times, continuing their their coverage, sending Wael Dahdouh and all these other journalists in the middle of Gaza, sending Lulul Khatar the, from the foreign ministry to go out there and show they're giving aid. Qatar shuttle diplomacy has been phenomenal in the way it's been going to Egypt, to Jordan, to the US, to Washington, 
to uh, Paris, to London, all of this lobbying on behalf of those in Gaza, trying to ensure that there's a way and means through which to end this genocide and ethnic cleansing, and also mediating a number of truces, particularly with regards to the hostage truce that took place when we saw an exchange that could have been extended, but Netanyahu panicked and realized that his government was about to collapse because Ben Gvir did a unilateral press conference where he warned Netanyahu and he said to Netanyahu, if you extend this truce, we will bring down your government. So I think Qatar's role has been immense in really amplifying that public opinion that has been essential in shifting the stance of foreign policy actors, particularly if you consider that Blinken, as US Secretary of State, went from calling for no ceasefire, went from banning the word ceasefire and banning the word pause in his own State Department to going into Netanyahu and telling him, please, let's do humanitarian pause because the Democrats are now behind in six swing states in the US to forcing Netanyahu into a hostage truce and now talking about a sustainable ceasefire or talking about low-intensity warfare. The point being is that Blinken is buckling under a pressure that is being exacerbated and amplified by the Qataris who are deploying their media to maintain public opinion while simultaneously offering a channel of communication through mediation that will allow for dialogue that will hopefully lead to a truce or a pause in the fighting or an extended pause in the fighting or an ultimate ceasefire in and of itself. Clearly, Sammy, the Qataris are backing the Palestinian cause, but I wonder what are the other drivers in their approach to the Gaza war? They are aware, and this message of theirs does resonate a lot in a number of capitals, that if Israel continues as it is, then it will cause such an escalation in the region that these powers will be brought into a conflict they will not be able to get out of. I mean, you look now, for example, with the escalation with the Iranians or the like, Blinken himself came out a few days ago and said that the region looks worse than it did in 1973. The point being is that, you know, that with all the tensions that are taking place. So I think Qatar's role has been phenomenal. It's been fundamental. I think the Saudis are slightly jealous. Bin Salman was hoping he could present himself as some sort of mediator to compensate for this, uh, uh, this, this point of view uh, in public opinion that the Saudis have betrayed the Palestinians and that they're standing close to, more closer with the Zionists than they are with the Palestinians. But certainly Qatar has now come under significant pressure as uh, Israelis now target Qatar and accuse it of supporting uh, Hamas and these others because they don't like the fact that their mediation efforts and their media coverage is humiliating the Israelis. The ICJ ruling will only make it worse. I don't think the Israelis ever envisaged that they would ever be put on trial for genocide. But this, but, but all of that is, is you know, it's, it's Qatari diplomacy, Qatari media that has amplified public opinion alongside social media, alongside what ordinary people have done. But Qatar's role has been nothing short of phenomenal. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the editor-in-chief of the International Interest, Sami Hamdi. The Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. In the information overload world in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. One article a day and a weekly podcast from top experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources, and no overload. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, be sure and look out for the offer of a free two-month trial subscription to our reader-supported daily newsletter. You, you touched a little bit on the Netanyahu coalition, these fascists uh, that have spoken openly about driving Palestinians from Gaza into North Sinai, uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich. They were uh, 
images of Ben Gavir dancing, 10 ministers from Netanyahu's government dancing at the thought that they would drive out all Palestinians from what they call greater Israel. Now, if this dream, this vision, this nightmare it would be realized, of course, it would put President Sisi under severe strain. He's um, he's kind of in a corner, isn't he? Rather like Mohammed Salman, he needs to keep Israel in play. For example, the gas deal in the East Med with Israelis. Do you see him playing any kind of role in de-escalation, or do you think he just is going to tra- paddle hard to keep his uh, his canoe out of out of serious trouble? I think that Sisi feels very badly wronged by the U.S. and by the Israelis. By that, what I mean is Sisi, Sisi believes that he rendered such a service for the Israelis and the Americans with regards to his manner in which he blockaded Gaza. But now they're asking him for an even higher price with no respect or regard for his position in front of the Egyptian people or indeed his position with regards to as, as leader of Egypt itself, with regards to the Suez Canal, with regards to you know, respecting the Egyptian army's control of the Rafah border or the like. And I think that when it comes to Sisi, Sisi has adamantly refused to take in the Palestinians, adamantly refused to allow them to enter Sinai, and he shut that border. I think Sisi is hoping to ride this out. There are options Sisi could have done in order to put pressure on the Americans and the Israelis, but the reason Sisi doesn't do so is because he's aware that unlike someone like Erdogan or, 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 or the like, he doesn't actually have popular support. And I think he tried to assess the extent to which he would be able to summon popular support for Palestine to push his agenda, but when he allowed protests for the first time since 2013, he hoped that they would be exclusively about Gaza, but then he found the protesters trying to go to Tahrir Square to protest against him instead. So Sisi is under significant pressure, but by the way, he's under significant pressure, not just from the Americans and the Israelis, but also from the UAE and Saudi, who are more aligned also with the Israelis, who are keen to provide support for the Israelis as well, who haven't been particularly keen there were reports, of course, Ben Zayed did tell Netanyahu that I won't give you money to rebuild Gaza. But at the same time, Ben Zayed also has refused to kick out the Israeli ambassador. And also the UAE ambassador has been consistent in that the Abraham Accords, there's no going back on them, suggesting that it doesn't matter how much genocide is committed. We are committed to our ties with the Israelis and we're ready to stay in bed with them. The point here being is that for Sisi in a difficult position, Biden tried to buy him off. If you remember 20th of October, Biden suggested to Congress that they give him 14 billion so that he could give to Egypt and Jordan to facilitate, you know, refugee camps or the like. Sisi's digging his heels in, but as the economic crisis gets worse and worse, people fear it's only a matter of time before he buckles. Yeah, he's in a a cleft stick, is I guess how we describe that. And and interesting, again, that popular support for the Palestinians is really crucial in Egypt, particularly given the economic crisis, most of it made by Sisi himself with his grandiose uh, projects to uh, to build huge, well, prisons is <laughs> one of the things that he's built, but also this new city that he's building outside Cairo. Um, let, let's pull the lens back a little bit, Sammy, from Middle Eastern countries. I want to ask you what you make of the UK's position and specifically the claim that the strikes on the Houthis are self-defense and they have nothing whatsoever to do with the Gaza war. I mean, what do you make of our government's position? I think that first and foremost, it's important to highlight that people keep insisting that the Houthis have affected global trade by seizing those ships in the Red Sea. The Houthis have made it absolutely clear 
that they are not affecting global trade. They are seizing ships that are heading towards Israel and that all other ships are able to pass with no problem whatsoever. But the Houthis are also equally clear that if the genocide in Gaza ends, so do their attacks on the ships in the Red Sea. They've, they've, they've said it quite bluntly that we're not doing it just willy-nilly. We're doing it, if you stop the genocide in Gaza, we stop our attacks in the Red Sea. And I think that's a very reasonable demand, particularly with anybody who sees that genocide taking place. And that's why I think that when, when the UK government comes out and says that the cargo ships are worth more than the lives of the Palestinians, that the UK government says that we would rather attack the Houthis and ensure that Israeli ships can go through than talk about a ceasefire to end the situation whereby children are having their limbs amputated without anesthesia or where, you know, women are being killed and bombed indiscriminately by the admission of the Israelis themselves or, you know, whether the UK believes a cargo ship going through the Red Sea is more important than what the ICJ deemed to be a very imminent possibility of a genocide against a people. I think that the UK government in its pursuit of relevance in a world in which it believes it's becoming increasingly irrelevant saw this sort of opportunity to join with the Americans to try to be part of something big. And I think it made a very, you know, misconstrued decision to join it, believing it would become relevant, but has found itself isolated in the way that it's being derided by public opinion. Having said that as well, when you look at the opposition party, Keir Starmer and these others, Labour Party and the like, and David Lammy coming out and outright, you know, rejecting a call for a ceasefire to end this particular genocide, and Keir Starmer suggesting that genocide could also be a legitimate form of self-defense for the Israelis by saying that the Israelis could cut off water and they could cut off supplies. I think, to put it simply, I think the UK is searching for relevance at a time when it fears it's becoming irrelevant. You'll remember the interview of the Chinese ambassador with Andrew Ma. Andrew Ma says to the Chinese ambassador, you know, where would you describe us? Are we a friend or a rival? And the Chinese ambassador says, with all due respect, you're neither a friend nor a rival. You're not big enough to be considered a friend or a rival either. You're not, you're not what you were before. And, and I think that's mainly what's driving the UK position. Yeah, and interesting because clearly the UK is making a decision to back the Israelis, uh, which runs against much world opinion, and they may find themselves uh, backing very much the wrong horse. But you touched on the U US role. I don't think that uh, I need to ask you too much about how you feel the Americans handle this. I had this image in my head, Sami, of... Uh, Mr. Blinken running around, dashing from Middle East capitals to Israel, to Washington, back again, spinning these plates in the air. One's called Abraham Accords, another true friend and ally of Israel, another two-state solution. All the while calling for restraint, uh, even as U.S., even as the U.S. continues to supply the bombs that are destroying Gaza and its people. I mean, just briefly, Sammy, when you look at America's handling of this particular situation, how do you how do you feel? I think that when you look at the way that the press conferences are increasingly becoming very clumsy in the way that the spokespeople are struggling to defend the Israelis saying, oh, we haven't done an investigation, or we don't know, that when Russia bombs a hospital in Ukraine, it's a war crime, but when the Israelis do it, we need to investigate. Or, for example, when people are dying in Ukraine, John Kirby cries, but when you know, he's asked about Gaza, he says it's just an unfortunate reality of what war is. I think the glaring contradictions have become so abundantly clear. 
And it's even got to the extent where, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you here from California, going around, you know, the US, it's even got to a point where people are, are, are unable to actually differentiate between Trump and between Biden. They're not entirely sure anymore who is worse because the way that Biden is falling over himself trying to make justifications for things that just can't be justified is being compared very much so to Trump, particularly with regards to a statement made where when he was asked, you know, you know, we, we, he said we were going to retaliate against Iran for attacks by its proxy. They say, what proof do you have that Iran was involved in this attack on USB? He says, Iran supplies the weapons. So people turn around, they said, so wait a minute. So that means that the genocide in Gaza, you know, the US supplies the weapons. I think it's abundantly clear that there is an ideological block at the top. Having said that, I think what's fascinating about the US position is that while there is this sort of rabid desire to protect Israel's bid to commit genocide and ethnic cleansing, I think also the way, the fact they have a democratic elections here in the US is what is making the Democrats sweat. Because if you look at the areas where the elections will be decided in those swing states, there's a large concentration of Muslim population. And given the vote is expected to be very tight, it's these Muslims who are expected to have the deciding vote. And Biden sent his campaign manager to Michigan to try to meet with any imam or any mosque or any leader who might receive him, and nobody would meet him. You're absolutely right about the Arab American vote, the Muslim vote. People are looking at what Biden has done and, and they're going to sit on their hands. They're not going to uh, come out and vote for Biden. Just to wrap up, Sammy, I, I want to ask you that finally, in the next weeks and months, what do you see the trajectory of this war is and, and, and how insecure is this making not just the region, but the world? I think that it's worth remembering that World War I and World War II began with a mistake. One was an assassination of a leader in Sarajevo, and of Franz Ferdinand, and one was Hitler's assumption that if he invaded Poland, the Allies wouldn't react because it was just a piece of paper. The same way Israel believes that if it annexes Gaza, it expects that nobody will react, whereas there may well be a reaction from the Palestinians or the like. So I think that certainly we're flirting, or America, US is flirting, with plunging the world into another world war. Having said that, I think that when you look at the fact that there are thousands of Israelis protesting in Tel Aviv, there are former Israeli prime ministers coming out saying Netanyahu needs to go. If you remember last week from the time of this recording, uh, Netanyahu made an interesting statement. He said, we reject a two-state solution and we don't believe elections should be held at this time. And that was a response to Blinken who met with Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz without Netanyahu's permission, suggesting that the Americans are trying to push for an election that might see Netanyahu ousted and an Israeli partner who might be more amenable to stop winding up the US by resisting calls for a ceasefire or the like. And Netanyahu is on record privately as saying that, look, it's not just me, I need to keep my coalition going and therefore you need to give me a, a, a good way out of this. So I think that w what we'll see is there's this Haaretz reported that there's a two-month truce that's been offered to Hamas. The Qataris are suggesting there's progress with regards to this truce. I don't think necessarily we'll see a ceasefire because a ceasefire suggests that Hamas will be allowed to stay in Gaza and to rule over Gaza. But given that they cannot kick out Hamas, because we're seeing the videos for all of the destruction, Hamas are still able to fire rockets onto Tel Aviv, something that's baffling the Israelis. I think what we'll see is, is extended truces, a phasing out of the fighting, you know, low intensity, these words being bandied about, 
that might result in a de facto ceasing of fighting, even if in, 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 in speech terms we still talk about a war that is ongoing. And I think that will, that will be done primarily to give the Israelis a way out of this in a way that lets them save face, because the reality is that for all of the destruction that they've wrought and the deaths they've inflicted on the Palestinians, it's clear there is this great awakening, this unprecedented global shift in public opinion that has resulted in Macron calling for a ceasefire, the Deputy Prime Minister of Belgium calling for sanctions, Spain saying it's ready to recognize a Palestinian state, David Cameron coming out and saying that we need to recognize a Palestinian state in order to move the process forward because the Israeli way has failed over 30 years, because a new generation of Americans, according to the polls, 35 and under, no longer support the Israeli narrative they are pro-Palestinian. Kamala Harris's own daughter is raising money for Palestine, suggesting that even in the same household, you will find the older generation Zionists and the younger generation Palestinians. All of these shifts, no matter how this ends, the ICJ is now ruling that those descendants of the victims of genocide should now stand trial of having conducted a genocide of their own. And I think that's a permanent turning point, which suggests that now the Americans need a PR strategy. How do we wind this down? And they will do that through a phasing out of the fighting. And that's why, and I'll finish on this point, I actually think that Netanyahu's loud assertions of a rejection of a two-state solution, and even this conference of settling in Gaza, I think it has less to do with a sincere intention to settle in Gaza, and more a preparation for elections that are going to be held. Netanyahu believes that to win an election, he has to be very vehemently pro-settlement, because although you suggested earlier that these are, you know, fascist right-wing members, Gideon Levy had a really good article in which he suggested that it's not the fascists who humiliated Israel and made it seem like a genocidal state. It is the ordinary Israeli opinion that lends itself to support for settlement, to support for genocide. And Israel is having a reckoning with the reality of itself. People are trying to pin this on Netanyahu and the fascist right. But there, as this war goes on, it's becoming increasingly apparent that this is a consensus amongst Israeli population that believe they are a chosen people and believe therefore that they have a right to a land that doesn't belong to themselves and that genocide is a legitimate means to achieve it. And when that became apparent to the world, the world was so horrified that public opinion has shifted. When Eli Cohen went to the EU and met with 27 member states, that's the Israeli energy minister. He proposed an artificial island for Palestinians to be relocated to. Apparently, the reports are Eli Cohen was so stunned that the 27 member states were horrified that such an idea was being presented as a serious alternative. As the, as the reality of Israel is becoming apparent, the Israelis, even the ordinary Israelis, are confused why people are so shocked at the means that they've deployed to establish their state. And now they're concerned that this permanent public opinion will lead to a series of events similar to what happened in apartheid South Africa that will lead to the end of Israel brought about by themselves, not by an external actor. Well, Sammy, uh, so much to play for. And and the sooner a, a ceasefire, a truce, call it what will happens, the better for the Palestinian people. And of course, I think Qatar will play an influential role. Uh, we will wait and see in the days and, and weeks to come what happens. But I thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of The International Interest. You'll have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. 
If you'd like to support our independent voice, head to our website at arabdigest.org, where you can find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Sammy. Check us out on arabdigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of over 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights. Insights you'll not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. (music) 